Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, right here on 2XX FM Community Radio. It's a fantastic Sunday and it's great to have you listening to us today, folks. We've got a couple of amazing scientists in store for you today and they're super special because they're coming to us because of the cancelled Pint of Science Festival. It was supposed to be running in the week just gone, but because it didn't happen, I get to steal these scientists for us and bring them on to Fuzzy Logic. So a shout out to the Australian Pint of Science team who are lending me these scientists today. And uh, we're going to dive straight into these stories where we're going to go through the worlds of visuals and seeing space debris all over the place today, folks. So make sure you don't go away for these fantastic interviews. So my first guest today is Erin Walsh. Uh, she's a research fellow from the Population Health Exchange at the ANU and a multi-talented scientist with a huge array of interests. And so we're going to delve into those with Erin today. So welcome along to the show, Erin. It's a pleasure to be chatting to you. Thank you. So let's let's jump in because you are do have a lot of interests in a lot of different areas in science. Let's start with your journey. Uh, how did you get to where you are now? An inability to pick one thing, I think is the best way to put it. Um, I headed to uni with an almost random assortment of, well, I'll try all these courses and see what fits me best. Turns out the science courses fit me best. So I ended up doing two undergraduate degrees in science just because you can't fit it all into one. Um, mostly around the softer ones, such as psychology, neuroscience, science communication, biology, that end of things. Um, at the same time, I didn't want to stop drawing. I had a habit of drawing in class. And it turns out you can listen and draw in lectures. So I spent most of those lectures drawing along. And um, one of my lecturers noticed my drawing in a biology lecture and said, hey, um, we need some illustrations for one of our papers. Do you want to help us out here? And so that's how I started getting into scientific illustration. So I pursued along the way by day continuing down the science line got my honors in psychology got my phd in psychology kind of wandered via biology into population health which is where i am now and um stayed up with lots of late nights drawing a huge variety of really cool things awesome well we might explore the population health and other things and the psychology in a bit but let's let's talk about that illustration because it's clearly a passion of yours uh, scientific illustration is a, a pretty unique skill. Uh, what makes it uh, different to just general everyday sketching? Uh, the key difference is that uh, the scientific concept or content has to be central to what you're illustrating or drawing. So a scientific illustration could be anything from drawing a dodgy stick figure showing a snake and saying, don't touch that snake, it's venomous right through to those beautiful pen and ink illustrations that you see in museums that display skeletons and animals that are just gorgeous. Um, the, the artistic nature of it is a bonus, but the key thing is it needs to show a scientific point. And what makes it an illustration is there's an interpretation of what that point is and what's important to make that point. So for a while, scientific illustrations seem to be going out of fashion because we suddenly had digital photography and everybody's carrying around their smartphone and they can take photos. But the problem with the photo is a viewer who doesn't know the scientific content doesn't know what is and isn't relevant inside that photo. So what an illustrator does is we understand what the scientific point is and we filter out the irrelevant information and we exaggerate or focus down on the most relevant piece of information. 
So if we compare a scientific illustration to a photo, you're kind of saying that uh, they wouldn't be identical. And in fact, an illustration may not be the, the uh, technically correct uh, interpretation of the object, but it helps us better understand what we're seeing. Exactly, exactly. So an example I use is if you have, if you're trying to describe to somebody um, a particular flower, say a rose, and you want to describe to someone, this is how you understand and spot a rose in a garden. If you just showed them a photo of a garden of flowers and put some arrows pointing down to, well, this one's a rose and this one's a rose, um, the, a naive viewer wouldn't know, well, you need to focus on these features of the rose to see how it differs from a daffodil. Uh, so what an illustrator would do in that context would be to take a rose, to pull the petals off, to draw the individual shapes of the petals and draw a general diagram of how the petals come together. Now it's less realistic in terms of the reality of it look less like the rose in the garden, but it's more useful because it shows you those specific features that you might overlook. And then you can generalize from that to understand, well, that's the rose, that's the daffodil. Yeah, and I suppose you've, you've mentioned that you've done a bit of psychology work. Have you kind of combined that with your illustration to understand how people interpret what they're seeing and what's going on? Definitely. So um, the most useful actual scientific backing to my illustration work was the visual psychophysics units that we did. So these, um, these are in psychology and they're about how your eyes and your brain interpret the visual world around you. And it turns out our brain takes a lot of shortcuts that we don't notice. And understanding those shortcuts of how our brain interprets a really complex visual scene is really good for, okay, well, if this is the shortcut our brain's going to take, I should play to that in my illustration. Yeah. Uh, the second is I did a lot well, of... What do you mean by those shortcuts? I'm going to interrupt there because you're saying our brain takes shortcuts. And I feel like these are happening without us even knowing. They are. They're, they're happening at, um, at, in some points, a deep neural level. So before it hits the conscious mind. So the uh, two fantastic examples of that are that the visual field as it hits our eyes is actually upside down. It's the wrong way around compared to the world out there. So our brain flips it back for us without us realizing. Similarly, um, the retina actually goes, the retina actually has a blood supply that's needed, right? Yep. The um, blind spot is where the blood gets from inside the head out through the retina to supply the cells. So we actually have a blind spot because our eyes need that blood supply there. We don't see it in everyday life because our brain takes everything that's around that blind spot and just fills it in for us without us realizing. And there's a whole bunch of ways that our brain makes sense of depth. So it's not just whether something's in front of something else, there's lighting cues, there's as you move your head, how things move in relation to each other. Um, when you think about it, we're essentially just two cameras mounted on a really, really smart computer. Um, and so these shortcuts that our brain takes so that that computer can actually run on the energy we give it, because there's only so much food you can eat in a day, um, those shortcuts are necessary for us to make sense of the world whilst not eating 10 pizzas every two minutes. <laughs> so really, we're just a very efficient computer. Well, yeah, we're an exceptionally efficient computer and just the same way that your desktop PC makes a few shortcuts of um, when you minimize a program, how it actually deals with that, our brain does something very similar. So understanding the neural architecture underlying that and how that relates to how we perceive and see the world can be really useful in knowing where detail is going to be useful in an illustration and what cues are going to be helpful or not so helpful. 
The second fantastic source of um, scholarly background for my illustration work is the scientific, uh, science communication units that I completed. So um, at ANU, we have an entire department. It's the Centre of Public Awareness of Science. So it's not just a tack on side thing as it is in some other places. It was full on major that I was able to undertake. And they pull from psychology and advertising and many other disciplines to pull together great underlying principles and how to communicate to others. So I feel like my psychology undergraduate degree taught me a lot about the nuts and bolts of um, the visual psychophysics end. And then the science communication um, element of my degree really helped me think through things like, well, who's the audience? What's my intention with this image? So if I'm trying to communicate a point, I will draw something completely differently if it's for a child compared to uh, an academic colleague. Um, it'll be completely different if I'm just trying to grab someone's attention with a picture versus convey a technical scientific point. Mm. Yeah, and those styles yeah, can definitely make a huge difference through the communication there. And I guess, um, how would you see uh, illustration playing uh, a part when we're trying to communicate uh, difficult or contentious issues or anything like that? Can you see illustration helping to, to shape our understanding through those sorts of things? Certainly, but it's somewhat dependent on what makes the issues contentious. So um, one area of contention can be ambiguity, where we don't actually really know the answer, in which case a visualisation is fantastic for showing, well, here's what we do know and here's what we don't know. Visual cues like question marks or having what we do know in colour and what we don't in grayscale can be great in showing, well, there's uncertainty here. We do know something. It's not completely scary and unknown, but um, here's a map of our certainty and our ignorance. When it comes to other sources of contention, like politics, I tend to try and not guard against a visualisation. Because <laughs> context, even with words, context you've got to be very, very careful about. And ultimately, a visualisation and an illustration is a conversation between the artist and the person viewing it. And half of that is on the viewer's side, and you can never fully know how a viewer is going to take it. So if it's just a dry-ish science fact or something that's just cool, then you can be pretty sure they're gonna be on board if you're on board. But if it's a matter of contention or opinion, it's better to just try and visualize the flat facts as much as you can and avoid misinterpretation on the other end. Yeah. Well, speaking of those facts and, and the, the viewer, which I guess kind of takes us nicely into the, the brain and, and how we think about things, which is another area uh, that, uh, that you, you work on. Um, and uh, specifically, you've done a bit of work looking at the ageing brain and how it changes as we get older. Um, what, what sort of stuff are you looking at there when you dive into the ageing brain? Right, so I was super lucky to land a postdoctoral position at the Centre for Research and Aging Health and Wellbeing here at ANU, um, Research School of Population Health. And I got started on an absolute dream of a data set. It's called Personality and Total Health Through Life. And if any of your listeners are participants in the PATH project, thank you. I've probably seen inside your brain and I'm really, really pleased that I got that opportunity. Um, it's a very large cohort study that started back um, around the year 2000 in the Canberra-Queanbeyan region. Got 7,500 wonderful participants who gave us their time to tell us about their lives, their health, and let us take MRIs of their brains in many instances. 
So um, we've been following them, not in a creepy stalker way, but following them <laughs> in a proper research way um, for more than 12 years now. So the data set I've focused on is the 12 year one. So what this gives us is this, I would say, smorgasbord of information about people's health, lives and well-being across time in a very, uh, I think Canberra and Queanbeyan could be considered a very wealthy, well-educated population. So if we see brain aging happening in a negative way in this population, we know it's probably worse everywhere else. But if we see good news stories in this population, then we know, well, there's hope for everywhere else. So my specific focus was looking at the impact of blood glucose. In extremal cases, that means a type two diabetes diagnosis, but we weren't just looking at diabetes versus everything else. We were looking at blood glucose as a continual um, spectrum and its impact on the aging brain. So the bad news part of that is if you have high blood glucose, even if you don't have a diabetes diagnosis, then you are risking greater shrinkage of your brain over time, um, worse outcomes in terms of cognition as you get older. So you'll find it harder to think and interpret and make decisions. Um, but the fantastic good news story is exercise, good diet, don't have to be the most buff astounding um, exercise junkie of the world you don't have to have the most perfect diet in the world just a decent good diet and trying to improve that diet um, protects you from all of these things um, even if you have a type 2 diabetes diagnosis if you look after your blood glucose your brain ages very similarly to people without a diagnosis so it's not just a you've got this diagnosis you're stuffed actually everybody can do something about it and even small changes like going for an extra walk every week can meaningfully improve your outcomes. That's quite amazing, really, because you uh, think about those things and people tell you, you know, stay healthy, stay fit, stay active. But I always wondered how much uh, it, of an effect it really does have. But you're saying even that that small little change can have a, have a difference on our brain health. Well, amazing. exactly. If you think about your brain, it's this super cool, squishy computer in your head. It's about a bit over a litre, depending on how big your head is. All of the little components in that are doing different things. So we focus a lot on the hippocampus, which is what helps consolidate your memory from um, daily experience to long-term, oh, I remember that. So if someone tells you their phone number, you fall asleep, you wake up the next morning and remember it, that's your hippocampus doing its thing. And we can see decline in the hippocampus over, the time, over time on the order of millilitres, which again, it doesn't sound like much, but when you consider that it's, a structure in a brain that's only got a litre or so to work with in its entirety, um, it's detectable. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. And you, you called this the PATH test. And, and so... Um, it's was, the PATH it's, data cohort. So PATH. personality and total health through life study. We shortened it to PATH because that sounds way better. Yeah, it does. It's much more catchy. But I, I, I note the P at the start. You're looking at personality. Now, how do you track personality over time? Okay, with the caveat that this isn't fully my ballywick, I'm much more interested in the physical structure of the brain because sometimes people's... Well, the reason I didn't go into clinical psychology is people confuse me at times. <laughs> it can be weird. So I'll stick with, the, with the, the structural elements for my research. But um, you can track personality through a number of questionnaires. A lot of people have done online... Well, how vivacious are you? How neurotic are you? Those kinds of questionnaires. Um, there's a large suite of scientifically validated versions of those. 
So they're not the, they're not the BuzzFeed ones. These are actually proper tests that tell you really how good you are. They're proper tests, but often they're quite similar to the BuzzFeed ones. So <laughs> I would say that BuzzFeed learned from the tests, not the other way around. Mm. Uh, and, and it's um, quite surprising because personality, particularly when you're an adult, it's very stable. So you'll notice if you like music when you're a teenager, you're probably going to like that same music for most of your life. But along the way, you will hear new stuff. Your horizons will change a bit. So you can track personality over time. And the two elements to it are what's the stable core of you as a person and then what are the things that change in response to life circumstances, things as mild as discovering a new musician right through to a death in the family or something darker like that. And so while I don't work on it directly, um, we can track that in part because we're taking measures every four years. If you do the same questionnaire about your personality every four years, it's long enough you don't remember the questions. So you can't just say, oh, yeah, same as last time. But we can look at where it stays the same and where it changes. And if you get enough people, you can start to see how that relates to other stuff like everyday health or the brain. Yeah, just amazing to think about all that sort of things. And I look, it sounds like an amazing um, a study that I had no idea was happening across Canberra. Um, are you, you're up to 12 years now. Are the interviews still going to continue? Or are we still going to monitor this data set? Well, we've got 12 years of data that I've been working on so far. That was um, wave four. Wave five is happening right now, I believe. Um, it was slightly interrupted by modern events, making it somewhat hard to interview people and get them into MRIs, but it is going ahead. So as far as, um, as, far as I'm aware, because I'm very much on the back end, not the front end, it is an ongoing thing. <laughs> that said, it's an absolute delight to bump into people in the community who happen to be half participants, because we've got people... Um, who at the start were aged 20 to 25, 40 to 45, and 60 to 65. It's a massive range and cross-section. So every now and then when I go to the shops, I'm like, hmm, maybe that's a path participant. I, I don't know their names because it's anonymous, and I, don't, I, I only know them when they introduce themselves to me. But it's a little delightful, hmm, they could be contributing to our science right now. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing to think of that. I feel like we need to get some people on to see um, to see uh, how they felt being a part of the program. We should chat to them further. Um, I, that would be delightful if you could find them because I don't know who they are. Ah, that's right. It is a, a blind study, so we, we probably shouldn't doubt them necessarily. So that's some really interesting research that you've shown us from the PATH project there. But let's move into your current research fellow position with the Population Health Exchange at the ANU. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Certainly. So Population Health Exchange is something a bit new and a bit unusual, although I wish it wasn't. Um, the idea behind it is we now understand that research is more than just people in their individual labs picking a question and plugging away and answering that one question. It's very much about collaboration, not only across disciplines within universities, but connections between the general public and the government and everybody outside the university as well. So the general idea of the Population Health Exchange is to foster those connections, to help connect not only our researchers to others, but also facilitate connections across the country, um, and also do research on it at the same time so unfortunately, a lot of collaboration in science has been sort of throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. It's who you happen to bump into at a conference who's at the same water cooler you are. And these connections are natural and really fruitful and excellent. But there's ways that we can come at it slightly more systematically and slightly more thoughtfully to really 
you better use the limited hours in each day to work together um, in productive ways. My role in the Population Health Exchange is to bring the visual element into this, so to focus a bit on how visuals can be used to facilitate collaboration, to break down language barriers. Um, we've got to remember that it's not just when an academic talks to the general public, they've got to actually remember to talk in the general public's vernacular. If I talk to someone from the Research School of Geology, we may as well be complete lay people in each other's fields. We have no idea what each other are talking about. Um, so it's overcoming those barriers and my interest is in seeing how the visual in um, communication, particularly on population and health topics, is used, uh, how, how we can develop it better, what does and doesn't work. Mm, and it's quite, I mean, when you think about the population, that's about as broad a stroke as you can draw, uh, really, <laughs> when you try to communicate with the whole audience out there through those visuals. Um, we don't try to do it all at once, though. If we're doing uh, it correctly, we'll, we'll pick out, okay, what group most needs this message? How can we be most legible to them? Because I can guarantee something that works fantastically to communicate to you might leave a, um, I don't know, a recently arrived Chinese student completely confused. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so what's something interesting that you've crafted recently in terms of visuals um, that's uh, been sharing a message with other people? So one of my favourite ongoing projects is for a journal called Conservation Physiology. It's a journal about conservation physiology, so it's already quite multidisciplinary. It pulls together climate change scientists and biologists of varying kinds, so fish biologists, bird biologists, everybody that you can imagine. And they have a series called Conservation Physiology in Action, where the idea is to take quite technical research, provide a plain language written summary of the work, and have a beautiful illustration to kind of tell the story of the scientific study, but also grab people's attention and draw them in. And I've been very lucky to be engaged with that as an illustrator. So Jody Rummer, the ed, um, one of the editors of Conservation Physiology, coordinates finding someone to write the plain language text. Who's they have a roster, and it's a different person each time, so we get a great variety of voices and stories. And then I draw pictures for it, so it's everything from seals molting at the wrong time through to how to catch a shark more humanely, through to bees. Done a few with bees. That's good fun. I've really enjoyed that because it shows how a topic like conservation physiology that sounds a bit dry and sounds a bit narrow is actually extremely broad and full of fascinating stories. And every, every month I learn something new that I had no idea about uh, that's outside of my normal area of expertise. So that's been fantastic fun. That's still going. Uh, apart from that, it's been really delightful to be involved in ANU's COVID-19 response. So you wouldn't think COVID and Delightful would come together. But within <laughs> Population Health Exchange, we've got people with um, marketing backgrounds. We've got a fine artist who is amazing. Uh, we've got researchers who we work directly with. And we've recently started working with the School of Art within the ANU as well and some of their students and reaching out to CPAS, so the um, Centre for Public Awareness of Science. And the real gratifying, fun part of that has been taking really important and timely and deep topics and seeing what these different perspectives are uh, and, and working with students to come up with real, actually useful, real-world outputs and outcomes. And along the way, not all of our ideas get through. I, I will still salute you, little Rolly, the toilet roll, our hero. He didn't make it into the final cut, 
But the fact that Little Rolly exists now is a beautiful <laughs> part of the fun that we have whilst also conveying really important information. Yeah, I can, uh, well, that's, that's an interesting one too, because of course that was such high priority in people's minds for many weeks and now probably just dropped off entirely. Oh, well, we're still working on it. Because <laughs> that's part of our role. That's part of the joy of it because we work very hard and we, we achieve a thing, but now we get to breathe and step back and look at what we did and look at what other people did and start to pin down, well, how can we be more efficient in future? How can we serve people better? Uh, we have time to ask people, what did you want? What was missing? Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of learning that uh, scientists and the population have uh, the ability to do from uh, this situation. And yeah, we can learn, uh, which I think is, is really important. Um, you know, not just looking at um, the actual uh, disease and protection around that, but all the other things and the way it's changing the world around us. Mm. Well, thanks so much for sharing your science today, Erin. It really has been a, a very multifaceted talk as, uh, as I think represents your science. And um, thanks so much for sharing those visuals, which uh, probably shouldn't lend themselves so well to radio, but I think you've done a great job at communicating um, the, the visual world into the audible medium. Uh, so thanks for joining us on Fuzzy Logic. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. And that was Erin Walsh, Research Fellow from the Population Health Exchange at the Australian National University here in Canberra. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. Let's have a short break with a bit of music now.
Seen the rain by Tones and I. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM. This is community radio here in Canberra, people powered radio. If you enjoy what you're listening to today, make sure to subscribe to 2XXFM and support this radio that supports your community. Head to 2XXFM.org.au where you can find out more. My second guest on today's episode of Fuzzy Logic is Doris Grosser. She's from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the ANU. Welcome, Doris. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. And uh, as, I, as I look at you uh, today on uh, the Zoom connection that we have, you're, uh, you're floating above the world in a, in a fantastic space-time scene. And of course, our listeners can't see this, but I, I feel like it's very appropriate for your area of research. Um, because we're diving into the world of space debris. Uh, and I can see stars behind you, but I can't see much rubbish uh, out there going on. Um, so what is, what is the space debris that you're looking at? Yeah, so the reason why you can't see any space debris is because it's just a generic space picture and they're always ah. pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so, so space debris is actually everything that mankind has put into orbit. Um, that is basically artificially made and doesn't work anymore. Um, so obviously the first satellite went up uh, in the late 50s and came down again because they didn't have enough energy to keep it up in orbit long enough and, and sort of far out. Um, but yeah, since then, of course, technology has advanced and we're putting stuff more and more out there. You've probably heard about mega constellations and hundreds and thousands of satellites being put out there. Um, for communication, things like that. Um, and at some point, these satellites, they actually run out of battery or they actually explode, for example, or sort of tear, wear and tear apart because of the radiation and, and the harsh environment that they're in. Or what also might happen is that they actually collide with each other. And that creates a lot of debris. And yeah, that's basically what's called space debris. Right, and it's all still floating about up there. And it's interesting you say that the picture behind you is like a, a nice, pretty space picture because the, the first guest with Aaron, we were talking about um, scientific diagrams and representing what's going on. So if, if we actually had a genuine repre representation of the, the space behind you, would we be able to see the debris and what's going on? Is it that thick yet? So, so there is, there is of course, um, I mean, you, you, if you just Google space debris, you'll actually find pictures of, of sort of Earth with space debris or around, space debris around it. Um, however, that's, of course, just sort of scientific representations of what, where, we, where we know things are or we estimate things are. Um, we actually can't sort of, if, if we were in the International Space Station, for example, and took a picture, we can't see it because the space debris itself moves in orbit very, very quickly. So um, International Space Station height, we're talking about seven kilometers a second. That's the speed things move in orbit. And that's very, very fast. So if you imagine you take a picture, like you just don't, don't see it because it's so fast zooming through your picture, basically. Like yeah. you have to basically have a piece of debris that basically is in a very similar orbit next to you to be able to see it so that the um, relative speed 
to one another of your camera basically is um yeah it's, it's like the same yeah um however when you do see the occasional shooting star for example there is a potential that there could be space debris burning up in the atmosphere or of course you do see satellite as you can see for example iss floating by as well um yeah. you can see other satellites and some of these satellites or pieces could just be pieces of debris as well yeah. so you can see them from from earth yeah it oh, makes uh, wishing on a shooting star seem much less romantic when you know <laughs> the space junk flying past well at least uh, you get more of them <laughs> that's true that's true more chances for wishes to come true um yeah so when we're talking um so there's space debris at the international space station level so how far away are we talking from earth with the international space station so so you could generally first of all say that sort of orbits start at about 200 kilometers up so it's actually not not too far at all mm. um that's just basically everything below the atmosphere is so thick that it's really hard to have something stay in orbit because the atmosphere kind of you know tries to slow it down with the friction and it comes back down by itself um but of course the atmosphere itself is a it's not like a sharp edge like it's just diminishing uh, more and slowly more. disappears yeah that's right yeah and the space station is around 500 uh kilometers i think at the moment yeah, yeah. okay but then our um uh space debris would extend does that extend much further than the international yeah, space so, station so there is generally there is sort of different we, we define different orbits as low earth orbits um, medium earth orbits and um, geostationary orbits is also an important orbit and low earth orbit goes from 200 to 2000 kilometers that's the, the the orbits that are close on earth they they also have the satellites that have the cameras on board that take pictures currently of you know empty empty places and streets yeah. um, because of the corona uh, <laughs> pandemic and things like that um, and then there is geostationary orbits which is, is at 35000 kilometers uh, way and those are um, because of the physics with orbits they are satellites that actually rotate around earth at the same speed as earth rotates yeah. so they're but actually forever. stationary hovering over one point which is really handy if you want to i don't know like for example have weather patterns like that and, and see like sort of the broader picture of one area um constantly and also for communication, they're really handy, like, um, for example, global TV communication, because they're just always in one place and you can just send a signal up and back down again. So, yeah, I can imagine that's, um, that's really useful to be geostationary there. But, of course, there'd be a limited uh, amount of uh, space um, to, to be putting things in geostationary orbit. And, and then if we're putting junk in there, that's going to be causing some trouble, right? That's right. That's right. So, so the current solution, funnily enough, the geostationary orbit is actually an environment that is fairly well managed okay. because they have I, like realized that they have limited space to begin with when they started using it. So they have implemented regulations that once a satellite is about to run out of its lifetime, it's put into graveyard orbit, which is it's called literally called a graveyard orbit. So they are orbits that are above or below um, the geostationary orbit, yep. and that's where the satellites get maneuvered before they run out of battery, basically. Okay, okay. So are we able to push them out of orbit 
because uh, you said above or below. So obviously below mm -hmm. is going to fall back to Earth, closer to us. If we push them out of orbit above, are they able to float away and just completely disappear into space? So, so we not have that. So it's actually capacity? energetically, it's technically better to put them in a lower orbit because you need less energy to put them in a lower orbit because of gravity. Earth gravity pulls it back. Mm -hmm. However, so far out around 35,000 kilometers, like whatever is there stays there. Like they're not coming <laughs> back down for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that's yeah. kind of the problem of the space debris to begin with. Um, and the satellite itself usually doesn't have as much energy when it starts its lifetime to, to leave our, um, you know, Earth's, Earth's gravity, solar system. Like it's, it's a lot of energy that is needed to actually escape um, Earth's gravity. So it's, it's whatever, I mean, there's, there's different, you know, uh, influences that make a satellite go in a different graveyard orbit and regulations and where it's permitted and where it's not and things like that. But the idea is to just basically get it out of the way, but not indefinitely far away because there's too much energy needed to do that. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Fair enough. And yeah, the energy for the satellite uh, is concentrated on getting it up there in the first place. Yes. Yeah. And also for maneuvers as well. So once, once the satellite is in orbit, like in, in a geostationary orbit, you do get a lot of um, solar flares and, and influence from the sun. So in these satellites, of course, they live off the sun as well. So they use the sun to power um, with solar panels. However, of course, that means that they're also prone to actually move around a little bit with all the electromagnetism and, and the, the solar radiation pressure and stuff like that that happens uh, to them. So they actually have to be maneuvered back in place right. occasionally. And so that means that there's limited fuel on board for them to navigate and limited energy. And so the, the operators need to be well aware of what they, like if they do a maneuver, like is it's going to cost potentially less like a shorter time for them to to operate the satellite basically okay so well let's make our way now from the the geostationary orbit area where you said it is reasonably well managed because we understand the importance there and, and how it is back slowly closer to earth where um uh where there's a lot more going on what's the space debris looking like as we start to come back in towards our planet so the, the MEO orbits, the medium Earth orbits, they, they are actually, because there's not too many science sort of operations, there's a couple of uh, GPS satellites around there um, from, from various countries. Um, that's actually not too much of, an of a concern there either. However, when we come to low Earth orbit environment, we have a lot of, I would say, clutter in certain areas uh, within those 200 to 2000 kilometers. So um, particularly around um, 800 to 1000 kilometers, it gets really, really cramped. And um, that's an area where there's already so little atmosphere that the, the satellites themselves don't come back down just through the atmosphere. We call it the drag of the atmosphere that drags them basically down again or slows them down. Um, only sort of below 500 kilometers is when that happens really fast. Um, so yeah, even, even for example, the International Space Station has to maneuver itself up again eventually because it is dragged down a little bit um, as well. 
So, so that area, everything below 500 kilometers is not so bad either because those things, they do come down depending on where they are and how, how big they are, you know, how much surface they have. Because like, if it's just a, 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 like a little cube, for example, it might not have as much surface area as a satellite with a big solar panel. So, so the the panels, uh, the, the satellites with a big surface area, they come down quicker in those areas, um, and the smaller ones, not so much. But below 500, they do come down. I don't know, depending on the satellite, but but up to 25 years or something. But sometimes even within a few months or years. Yeah. Okay. So they eventually come down. But you're saying, yeah, in that middle zone there, it's kind of like just no resistance, nothing to stop them, just these satellites and debris whizzing about at super fast speeds. So, Correct, yes. So it sounds like um, there's, there's a bit of a problem there um, with these, these, this space debris. Yeah. So, so the funny thing is it's, it's like a problem that, that hardly anybody acknowledges in the sense that as long as nothing happens, you don't see it, so you don't realize that it is a problem. And the probability, I've once heard, um, I actually don't have the numbers at hand, but I, I once heard that the probability that, um, you know, something does hit, like that they are like actually really small probabilities. Um, yeah. But you have to kind of think, for example, with a space station, the probability that something happens, you don't want to have a probability of 1% that something hits the space station because that's a really, really high probability because there is astronauts on board the station mm. so they actually start maneuvering the station away from the debris when the probability is already sort of 10 to the minus four so 0.001 percent yeah wow or anything higher than that yeah. so with satellites it's not as strict because it's just a satellite but and and the probabilities are quite low however if something does happen so we, we actually have recorded um some collisions they don't happen very often. So there was one collision in 2009 of two satellites and they collided and they caused themselves 2000 pieces of new debris. Yeah. Wow. And out of which some have deorbited already. That depends on how they, how they, the, the satellites themselves, they kind of impact with each other and, and where, where the resulting force is. So, so some of the debris kind of went sort of lower and went down the atmosphere and burned up. Um, but other debris just stayed in orbit, and now these orbits they are pretty uh yeah like they're they're unusable basically yeah, yeah, and I can imagine it uh, as as well as just destroying the satellites there's a huge financial cost to something like that too um, yes these aren't yeah. cheap pieces of machinery so the, the 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 funny thing is, and that's kind of part of the problem where we kind of go to a bit of a economical thing is that it actually becomes cheaper and cheaper to put satellites into space the lower they are. So that's why the low Earth orbit environment is so cluttered because it's actually affordable for even universities to put little CubeSats into low low Earth orbits, for example. Whereas when we talk geostationary orbit, the, the environment that's really well regulated or fairly regulated, it's really expensive to put a satellite up there and you have to get a license and uh, like a slot, you're given a slot and things like that. So, so yeah, that, that's why, of course, not so much is happening there. Okay. So your research is, is looking into space debris and how we can um, start to, to manage it a bit better. Um, take us into to your work. 
So I actually, I'm not an uh, astrophysicist. I'm not an astrodynamicist. Uh, I'm actually an optics engineer and I develop adaptive optic systems. And um, the idea of that is that what I'm trying to do is actually to gather more information about the space debris. So we actually know what is out there, how it looks, because um, often we just lost track of, you know, we send stuff up there. People don't necessarily know how and where things are, things like mm. that. So it's important that we gain that, back that information to know where things are and how they look and how they behave in that environment. Yeah. And the problem is that obviously if you look from ground, you have to look through the atmosphere, which distorts the light. And an adaptive optic system actually measures the distortion and compensates for it so you can increase the resolution. And we are able, provided you have a reasonably large telescope, meter or two meter large, that's already quite, quite a big piece of equipment, um, then you're actually able to be able to resolve the image, meaning you don't just see a dot um, of a satellite. You actually see a box, maybe an L shape. Um, you can differentiate between a solar panel and a rocket body and, and things like that. Um, and then this system runs really, really fast because the atmosphere is changing uh, quite fast. Um, so, so it compensates for the distortion in real time and you can actually have a little video and you can follow the satellite in the sky and then you can see it sort of turn, which gives you an idea of what the spin rate is of the satellite. Because it will, again, each satellite behaves completely, well, not completely different, but is differently influenced by its environment depending on its shape and what it's doing, basically. So as you start to, to learn more about the sky and identify all these, these different uh, bits and pieces that are out there and what they're doing, what are you doing with that information? So the idea then is to, to have a database, basically, um, to provide that to, um, well, the next step is actually to, to provide that to, to researchers who work like basically mathematicians, for example, who use that information to be able then to better determine an orbit and also predict an orbit. So where is the debris going to be in a week, for example, um, given that it's either a ball shape or a box shape, for example, because it will be slightly different. And you have to think if things go so fast in orbit, like that slight difference might make the difference between something hitting it or not, where, where it's going to be. Um, so with the help of that, um, the idea is to improve those predictions um, and also identifying objects more uniquely. So at the moment when you only see dots, you know that, oh yeah, yesterday the dot was over here. So it should come up this night again, around the same time, around the same spot. Mm. But if debris and debris increases, then of course you might see several spots sort of showing up around the same time. So you can't necessarily be sure that the dot that you saw yesterday is the dot that you see today. Mm. Okay. So slowly building a picture of what's happening up there, better understanding what's going on, able to make better predictions, which is all really good. But is there an actual point where we get to clean up what's out there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. So, so I, I saw my... that eye roll as <laughs> <laughs> so I asked that question. So, so there, is, there is a lot of ideas. And the, the problem here is that because that this environment is 
is so complex um, and there is so many different types of debris, so many different materials, different um, speeds that they go at. Um, there is different types of forms of solution. Um, adaptive optics itself actually provides one solution to one little part uh, of the problem. Um, so we can actually now also from ground again, um, measure the distortion of the atmosphere again and propagate laser light, high power laser light through the atmosphere. This is now where it gets uh, super, super science fictional. <laughs> That's so, right. Yes, I'm, I'm looking at um, shooting space debris with a big laser. Um, and you need adaptive optics because if you just use a big laser and you know, propagate it through the sky or through the, through the atmosphere, um, it will distort and it will diverge the beam. Yeah. And then you don't have enough energy to target um, towards the object that you actually want to target. And the idea behind it is um, it's called a continuous wave laser. Um, and so it the laser light has photons. Maybe you've heard of photons. Light, light is made out of photons. Yeah. And these photons, they actually can transfer what's called a momentum. So they can actually have the ability to push something. Sorry. So, you, so, yep. Go ahead. I've, 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 just, I've just clicked to that. So you're saying light has the ability to push something, like yes. as in physically exert a force on... Yeah, correct. Yes. Amazing. It actually does that all the time. The force is just right. so so subtle and so small that you don't actually see it. Right. So, so this light that's coming down on me now from the ceiling is actually exerting a force. Yes. Yep. But I just don't feel it or see it. Um, Correct. Wow. Yeah. So then if and, you're talking about using light to move, I mean, they're very heavy objects up there, but there's not much gravity. So is it, is it really strong light or is it just that the objects don't weigh much? It is. It has to be strong light due to the fact that the photons themselves don't exert much force each, and it has to be laser light because the photons have to be directed all in the same uh, direction. You know, like light from the ceiling is is very diffuse, and it, what we call is non non coherent, uh, non coherent. And so, so laser light is coherent light, which is all directed in one direction, has the same what we call phase and things like that. Yeah. So every, everyone's um, pushing the same way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, but it's only possible. So you, 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 like this, this, this kind of principle has been proven in, in vacuum chambers, for example, with very, very tiny pieces and high power lasers, but at short distances, like, you know, 30 centimeters or something, not, not 300, 500, 1000 kilometers. Mm. Um, and it's only possible because these satellites are in microgravity. That means that you literally like with your, with your little finger, you could probably push or start rotating um, a ton of satellite just just by by the flick of of your finger or your hand. Yeah, so, so that's quite amazing. And so then the idea from that is to take the uh, the push and push them closer to Earth to put to get them down into a lower orbit. So, so there's two, two scenarios. The, the easier one, so to speak, is just if you know that two things are colliding towards each other, you push one and you change the orbit slightly so they don't actually collide. So it's just a mitigation technique to basically avoid collisions to buy you some time to deal with the problem later, basically, <laughs> because it's not going to go away, you know. Yeah. Um, but it is actually also possible um, to actually basically slow down the object with light 
rather than speed up. And that will have the effect that the once once the kinetic energy of the object is getting um, slower, it'll actually come come closer down to Earth uh, eventually. But there is, of course, there's like you know you you have to get your astrodynamics right. There is you have to look, have a lot of what we call engagements. Uh, ideally, it has to be a global system, so you can engage on one side of the globe and on the other as well. So you make that orbit going small or circular, otherwise it's going to be elliptical. So it's, it's a very, very complex astrodynamic problem. And just with the capability that, that we are at at the moment, it's not really feasible to do, to basically bring those objects um, closer to Earth. That's why this, this technology doesn't exist as a, on a global scale. Um, but I couldn't envision like in, in 10 years, 20 years time that we could have a global system like that, that yeah. works on those objects. So what are the limitations we're looking at at the moment? Is it just coordinating things on multiple sides of the globe or is it technology limitation too? So it's, so for example, the adaptive optic system itself, which is the one that provides you the measure of how well you are able to focus the beam, that the beam stays focused through the atmosphere, runs on real-time measurements. So you have to have the capability, like for example, CCDs or CMOS cameras that have to run really, really fast but at the same time only have a little bit of light coming into them and not being very noisy on readout. Now I'm getting a bit technical, but there's like this technical limitation of, of just how we can measure the distortion that cannot be indefinitely fast or indefinitely accurate or in, in, indefinitely, um, yeah, well, you know, perfect in that yeah. sense. There will always yeah. be an error. And then there is this device called a deformable mirror that compensates for these distortions. It's literally a mirror that it can deform itself. It can change its shape um, in order to compensate for those distortions in um, the light, which shows itself in, in a distorted wavefront because light also comes in wavefronts. Mm. <laughs> you know, photons and wavefronts is kind of a, the thing of light that it has both. Um, and... And that deformable mirror can only, because um, it's at some point a mechanical device um, or electromechanical device. Sometimes it can also be an optical device, but they are a bit slower even. But it can only be certainly fast to some extent. So, so there is sort of technological um, problems that, you know, we can't be indefinitely good um, compensating at such high speed to compensate for the atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So we just uh, need to go dive further, I guess, to to find uh, more, so we can be get further accuracy into that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. so the technology needs to advance a little bit more in in various areas. Also, of course, in in the in the laser um, technology as well, because yeah. you need you do, you do need a bit of power to to push some debris, and the power needs to go through your optical system. So the optical system needs to be able to, to cope with that amount of power on ground where the light is, of course, very, very focused and yeah. dense. Amazing. So there's some amazing technology there, but I love the fact that either way, it still comes down to your research there, which is the adaptive optics. Correct. We need those yes. adaptive optics to see out. We need those adaptive optics to get the lasers through. Yes. Um, so without yeah. adaptive optics, you won't be able to, to do that form yeah. of solution. That's right. 
Yeah, that sounds amazing. So what gets you super excited about your research, Doris? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I started in, in optics and I, I um, started like basically being interested in what lasers can do because I was very fascinated about the ability of light and particularly laser light because you can do so many awesome things with it. Um, yeah, and then I, I somehow ended up like I saw this, this space project and I was like, oh, lasers and space. <laughs> That's like the perfect combination. <laughs> yeah. So everybody wants to be rocket scientists. I don't design rockets, so I don't go up in space. I still design ground-based instrumentation, but I've got a space application. So I get to go to all the space conferences. And why wouldn't you? That just sounds like an amazing career. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely sci-fi movies coming into real life through your research there. That's fantastic. Um, well, right. thanks thanks so much for taking some time to share with us this morning on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, we're sorry you couldn't present at Pint of Science, but hopefully we're still able to share your research with uh, a large audience and uh, we yep. might catch you for a pint in person next year. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for that. Thanks, Doris. That was uh, Doris Grosser there from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Australian National University. That brings this week's episode of Fuzzy Logic to an end. You can always podcast our episodes. We're found on Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. And I also recommend that you check out pintofscience.com.au because they have had a huge range of activities happening across the week that's just gone. Uh, so make sure you check them out, folks. Pintofscience.com.au, where you can find all the amazing science activities that were taking place across Australia. You can even see yours truly hosting a YouTube panel uh, on some amazing mind science there. So check it out. This has been Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM here in Canberra. My name is Broderick Matthews and we'll catch you next week for your science on a Sunday.